0: Verse number 13, 1 Timothy six thirteen. I give thee charge in the sight of God, Timothy, the God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate The King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be able by your grace to pull a blessing or two, a lesson or two, out of this scripture. We pray that we might be benefited by it, and that in our approach to the throne of God, we might be better equipped to do it properly. Bless, we pray, your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In a few minutes, we will be going to prayer. Once in a while, when we do that, we need to ask ourselves, to whom is it that I am praying There are millions of people praying to hundreds of thousands of deities that are idols, that are ideas, that are nothing but ideologies. Who are we praying to? So we need to ask, which God is it that I am addressing? To whom am I beseeching? What sort of God? Do we pray? Are we only talking to heaven with our spiritual cell phone seeing some or not seeing at all just uh, uttering a few phrases toward heaven without any personal conversation without any eye to eye or are we actually talking to someone? And this one that we are talking to again, who is he? I could ask that same sort of question in regard to our witness. Who is the God we are sharing with this world? Much of Christian evangelism today does not share the holy uh, transcendent Lord God of, of the word. Perhaps even more closely connected to our scripture, what is the nature of the God who has charged us? That's the word that we have here. Who has given us commands to follow? Who is this God who has directed us in these things? Is he no more important to us than some lawmaker sitting in a marble-built edifice two thousand miles away who's passing laws that we may not really concern ourselves with or is he really the god of gods the king of kings and lord of lords who is this god we worship and serve who is this god to whom we pray paul is bringing his first letter to timothy to a conclusion this is chapter six he exhorts his young friend follow after righteousness Godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Follow these things. And then he adds, This charge I give thee in the sight of God, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is coming back. Live in such a way. Appreciate the fact that he is going to be here very soon. He is going to be here, as far as Paul is concerned, before you die, Timothy. Before we die. So fight the good fight of faith. There are a lot of things that we could uh, uh, preach from in this scripture and in the context. But there's something else upon which I have in my sights. Again. Who is the God who authorized this charge? What sort of God has left us these commandments? Paul shares or sheds some light on the nature of this God right here in the context. He refers to several divine attributes. Now, these attributes don't appear to be directly connected to the commission that Paul is sharing with Timothy. And perhaps it's not directly, they are not directly connected to us as we go to the Lord in prayer. But they should be in our minds, these things that are mentioned here. This is the God that we address. This is the God who has commanded us. They're always a part of the Lord. The God that we serve and the God to whom we pray. Tonight I'm going to follow the trail blazed with the word who. There's several who's in here. For example, ours is the God who quickeneth. Yes. Verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. The word translated quickeneth is used about a dozen times in the Bible. Quicken may not come up this way very often in English, but it's reasonably easy to understand if we want to know what what we're talking about here. The Bible makes it pretty clear. In speaking about Jesus' resurrection, Peter wrote, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit." Death followed by quickened. And in Jesus' own words, the meaning should be clear. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. When the Lord restores life to someone who has been dead, it is said that they have been quickened. Their life has been returned to them. They have been quickened. So the word means To give life. Pretty simple. And here Paul tells us that our God is the one who quickeneth all things. More specifically, he is the God who quickeneth all things. There is nothing living, there is nothing alive, which hasn't gotten his life from which has got its life from other, one, uh, some other source than the Lord. The Lord gives life. Yes. We may talk about fathers and mothers who bring their children into this world and give life to their children. The fact is, unless the Lord is right in the middle of that, that child who's been carried by mom for eight months in her womb may be stillborn. The Lord decides whether that child is going to live. The other day, Judy and I were watching a documentary on the television, which proposed the idea that forests have mother trees, and they have little families, which may include their same species or other species, and that they're linked together, and mom feeds these other trees. And, well, I wasn't convinced. A tree is not like the the queen of the pride of lions or something like that. At least I don't think so. Maybe Brother Berg could shed light on this after the service. I am not convinced that uh, there's a mother tree in every forest, but I am convinced that every tree has life because God wants it to have life or every goose is flying overhead or every every sparrow has life because god wants it to have life everything that is living has its life from our god our lord the god to whom we pray quickeneth all things jehovah has said see now that i even i am he there's no god with me i kill I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. When Paul was talking to the philosophers there in Athens, he said, In Jehovah we live and move and have our being. All things are made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him is life. In our God, not your God, you Greek heathen philosophers in the God of the Bible when we go to prayer when we ask the Lord for his blessing on our sick friend when we ask for comfort when we ask for growth or whatever remember that you are praying to the one who quickeneth all things and he can answer any sort of these prayers if it be in his will he can quicken once again in this burden that you have. Remember, he quickens all things. Paul also calls our God the one and only true potentate. Verse 15. Potentate. Here again is a word we don't use very often in our day-to-day English, if we ever use it. But once again, it's pretty easy to understand What an education there is in learning what our King James Bible has to say. How it broadens our vocabulary and stretches our minds. Just to read it and and learn what these words are. Anyway, no one who desires to know the truth can miss the meaning of this word. Potentate. It refers to potency. It refers to power. It refers to power and might. God, our God, is the only true potentate. He is, as Paul says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's in charge. And again, I quote Deuteronomy, which I did just a minute ago, 32, 39, where Jehovah says, See now that I, even I am he, there is no God with me. I am the one, the one and only. But are the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords one of God's glorious titles? Or is it a statement of fact? Judy proofreads all of my books before they go to publication. And one, two or three books ago, I don't know what it was, she noted as she was going through the manuscripts Uh, shouldn't these words all be capitalized? King and king, both capitalized. Lord and Lord, both capitalized. Shouldn't they both be capitalized? My answer was that both here and... Well, answer in my head. I didn't actually speak to her, I don't think. Uh, The answer is that here in this text and also in Revelation chapter 17, we read... That the second king is lowercase. lowercase. The second lord is lowercase. In other words, our God is the divine and absolute king over all kings. Right. He is the lord over all right. earthly lords. <coughs> However, having said that, in Revelation nineteen sixteen, we see our glorified Savior. He is described there. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you turned in your Bible, I think you would find just as I have in my Bible, the whole phrase is capitalized. The whole thing is in brilliant biblical orange print. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That is his title because he's king of all kings. And he's Lord of all lords. That's just the way it is. And by the way, in Revelation, it's quite clear that the King of kings and Lord of lords is the Son of God. But, notice verse 13 here in Timothy. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. I give thee charge in the sight of God and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate had this good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, without uh, uh, failure, shall I say. Paul goes back to talking about God generally, or God the Father. And he seems to say that God the Father is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't stumble over that. We should never separate the Father from the Son very far. They share everything. They have the same essence. It's not a problem. So again, when we go to prayer, when you hear the Lord's command, you are in the presence of the only true potentate, the absolute superior and in my Bible, check to see in yours. The word potentate is capitalized, suggesting that our translators said this is talking about God. He is king. So he only hath. Uh, what was the first one? He uh, he quickeneth. He is the potentate. Verse sixteen. He only hath immortality. Earlier in this epistle, Paul extols the Lord by saying, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Only our God, no other God, only our God is eternal and immortal. What Paul says, who only hath Immortality Jehovah is absolutely deathless. I don't know how else to put it. Everything else dies or rots, its life leaves it, it's somehow corrupted. The only exception to that rule are those things which God very few things which God has said they will be eternal, too, like our eternal soul or angels. Everything else. Dies. Everything else is gone. But the eternality of our soul is eternal, deathless, only because God has said it will not die. And he is deathless. This means that what the only potentate determines is determined eternally. Unless the Lord limits it. We don't have to worry about the will of God eventually failing. Or the immortal potentate changing his mind. The promises of God are as eternal as the immutable, eternal God is immutable. Eternal. How important are each of Paul's points about the nature of God? Perhaps we can see the importance coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Please turn to John chapter 5. The Lord refers to some of these things in another context. But let's just put it in that context. John chapter 5. What verse did we want to start with? I didn't write that down. John chapter 5. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the Son, he quickeneth, Excuse me, as the Father quickeneth the dead, raised them up, and quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He only has immortality. Verily, verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall be quickened. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is also the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Our God is eternal. In addition to these things, God is transcendent. I spent... Quite a bit of time trying to find a better word than transcendent. I couldn't come up with one. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom, unto, whom no man has seen or can see. I wish I had a better word than transcendent. The Lord is unapproachable. But that word, that, that word fails. That word suggests a a fence or armed guards. It suggests an angel with a, a fiery sword that he swings back and forth. No one can approach this God. The Lord is unapproachable only because His very essence is so different from us and our natures that no approach is possible. Like two powerful magnets where the poles opposing just we cannot come into His presence because of who He is, not because there's an angel there keeping us away. He's above us and beyond us. The Lord is so far above His creation that only by grace can we come into His presence. Yes, only by His His willingness toward us can we come toward the Lord. So how do we come boldly under the throne of grace, which is so far above us, transcending us? We come in the name and in the authority and in the righteousness of the Son of God, who gave his life that we might become a part of the family of God. When you pray, you are addressing the one who dwells in the light, which no man can approach unto. How can we dare to bring our petty requests into such a holy atmosphere? We do so because we have the invitation of the Son of God. We have the command of the Son of God. Do we have any right? No. None whatsoever. We are praying to the God who is dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen or can see. Who, 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 who? There's one that I skipped. Did you notice? Our God is the blessed and only potentate. He is the blessed one. To my knowledge, God is called blessed only here and earlier in this book in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. Neither Peter nor John refer to God as blessed. Moses, David, Asaph, none of the Old Testament writers speak of God with this term. It is a common term in other contexts, but not in regard to the Lord. It's rare in regard to the Lord. For example, on or in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, many, many times in the early verses, We have things like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Paul uses that word blessed when he says to Titus that he was looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that you are familiar with the fact that the word blessed, you don't have to know the Greek word, it's makarios. I hope that you know that it means, let me just preface that a little bit. It's usually translated blessed, but not always. And when it's translated in that other way, it tells us exactly what the word means. For example, it's found in 1 Peter, where we read, If ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. We could understand all of those statements in the Sermon on the Mount as being, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's not an earthly happiness, we understand that, but it is a very special kind of joy. That is the same word which Paul applies to our God twice here in 1 Timothy, once in the scripture that we are reading. My mind is not sufficient to understand it, My tongue cannot describe it to you, but my Bible tells me that my God is happy. Let that sink in. Why might it be said that God is happy? I can only guess. I have to go from this world in which I live. I surmise that he is happy, Because as I heard somewhere, it's good to be king. (laughs) And he's king. It's good to be king. He is blessed and the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Even for wretched sinners like us, to have our own way makes us happy. God has his way. Always does. Always. Jehovah is always in charge. He should be very happy. I don't know if this is blasphemy or, or just uh, an anthropomorphism. Why shouldn't the Lord be happy? Knowing that everyone whom the Son shall save shall be with him in glory forever. Why shouldn't the Lord be happy to know that every one of us miserable wretches will one day be absolutely pure and and changed by the grace of God, glorious in, in the Savior's righteousness? Why shouldn't he be happy knowing that someday the glory and the beauty of the original creation will be restored and magnified a hundredfold? Why shouldn't he be happy about such things? I think the Lord's happy to hear us bring our requests to him. He's joyful in knowing that we recognize our dependence upon you, Lord. Please bless us. We could go on talking about things that make us happy, suggesting perhaps they also make the Lord happy. But... His joy is as transcendent as he is, is above us far farther than our imaginations can take us. Right. Picture Dagon, the god of the Philistines, that fish god. Picture the gods of the Hindus. Or those feuding gods of the Romans who are always squabbling with each other, the, the Greek gods, the Scandinavian gods. Picture any of those other gods as happy. Can you do it? Are they happy? I don't think so. Who comes to your mind of those that are joyful, even cheerful, some idols might have smiles carved on their marble heads, but more often than not, they're evil sneers more than smiles. Our God is blessed, joyful, blessed, happy. Our God is the only one that is the blessed deity. He's happy when we obey him and serve him. He's happy to hear our praise and our worship. Not because it's forced out of us and he's got us. He he hears it because we joyfully give it. Let us go to this God with our burdens and with our requests. Let's fill this house with our thanksgiving and our praise. I know that this is a stupid thought. Probably we should never finish a sermon, a lesson on a stupid thought. I know it's an impossibility, but let's endeavor to make the Lord more happy than he is. We're not going to make the Lord more happy than he is. But what if we strove to do that? What if that was our desire? What if we were pushing ourselves in that direction? Let's honor him by humbly beseeching him for miracles of grace. That will glorify him. That should make him joyful. Let's make him happy by praising him for the multitudes of blessings that he gives to us. Who is the God that we address? He should be so many things to us. He he quickens He is all powerful. He is immortal. He's far above us. And He's a blessed God. To whom do you pray?